we all make mistakes, decisions that we regret, things we'd like to do over, like not buying Bitcoin when you first heard about it at $1. We all carry around different stresses, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. At times, therapy has helped me and my loved ones in many ways. Therapy isn't just for those who've experienced major traumas. With the right guide, you can discover effective strategies to minimize distractions and truly connect with your needs, setting the stage for a more balanced life. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched up with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge take a moment visit betterhelp.com slash gold today to get 10 percent off your first month that's betterhelp h-e-l-p.com slash gold in my early days i faced a pivotal moment in my career instead of following the herd into traditional finance i charted my own course despite skepticism i founded my investment firm driven by a belief in economic truth and fiscal responsibility through perseverance i established myself as a leading voice in finance proving that sometimes blazing your own path is the best way to succeed to get what you want sometimes you have to challenge the status quo and blaze your own trail that's what harry's did seeing people tricked by expensive razors harry's took a stand Instead of pricey options, they offer high-quality razors at a fraction of the cost. That's why when it comes to grooming my face, I use Harry's. Harry's understands the value of quality without breaking the bank. Their razors provide a smooth shave every time, and their shaving gel leaves my skin feeling refreshed and moisturized. So don't settle for the status quo. Blaze your own trail with Harry's. Get started with a $13 trial set for just $3 at harrys.com gold. That's harris.com slash gold for a $3 trial set. The Peter Schiff Show. The rotation from momentum stocks to value stocks continues, although it was interrupted potentially today, although the value names seem to have had a pretty good day. But we had a bit of a bounce back in some of the tech stocks today, the NASDAQ. I was up just over 40 points, although I think that was about half of what it was up earlier in the day. But I think today is simply a reversal Tuesday type move in this new underlying trend that I think has legs. In fact, I think it is long overdue. We have had a very substantial gap between these momentum growth type names and the defensive uh, value stocks. And I think we're finally starting to revert to the mean. And we have a long way to go, I think, in this trade. Although it's just getting started in that I think it's going to progress. It's not just that the risky stocks that are going to get sold. I think it's the risky currency, the dollar. Everybody believes, and I think they're wrong, that the dollar is a safe haven. I don't believe so. I think it's like a junk currency. I think people are buying it more as a speculation than as a safe haven. And I think when people accurately perceive the position of the U.S. dollar, of the U.S. economy, of how we actually stand in this trade war and our vulnerabilities, and as they look through all the hype that keeps coming out of 
Washington about the economic boom and the booming economy. Every time I hear Trump talk, it's about the booming economy. It's about how he has presided over an unprecedented turnaround. I mean, I don't even know what Trump is talking about, but all this hype, obviously, we got these consumer confidence numbers out today, uh, which are the highest they've been since the dot-com bubble. And of course, we know how that turned out. And I'm sure a lot of the confidence is among Republicans, people who voted uh, for Trump, or maybe even some Democrats who enthusiastically crossed over and voted for Trump. And, you know, they're still waiting for this uh, economic boom to trickle down uh, because they keep hearing about it, but it's really not showing up in their own lives. But, you know, they haven't lost hope. But I think as we move past all that rhetoric, uh, we're going to start to see a movement out of the dollar. Uh, Also, the rotation not included gold stocks. I mean, that's really where people need to rotate because nobody's in gold stocks at all. In fact, the Vanguard Gold Fund, which is the largest gold fund in the country, I think it's got about two and a half billion dollars in it, which shows you how small gold funds are when that's the biggest one out there. Uh, And it's the biggest by like a factor of two. I mean, the second biggest one is Fidelity. I think it's about half the size of Vanguard. And Vanguard announced earlier this week, that they're changing the objective of the fund. They're changing the name of the fund. It's no longer a gold fund. It's just going to be investing in cyclical stocks. It's going to try to be negatively correlated to the overall market, uh, but they're still going to have some exposure to uh, gold stocks and silver stocks, but down from 80% to 25%. So to me, this is a great contrarian indicator that after all these years, Vanguard is throwing in the towel on having a gold fund. I mean, they are the biggest fund company out there. You have lots of individual investors, and now they're no longer going to be in a gold fund, right? They're going to be in a fund that has a weighting to the gold sector, and that's probably the only fund that they're going to have that has any weighting to the gold sector. But the fact that they're giving up after riding it out this long, again, confirms to me that investor sentiment is very negative on the sector. Even the managers don't want to stay in the sector anymore. And those are things that happen at the bottom, right? People generally close down funds at the bottom and at the top, right? After a huge bull market in gold stocks, I would expect to see a lot of gold funds being started, right? A lot of people are going to want to cash in on the trend by jumping on a bandwagon. And so that's normally what you would see at tops of markets. This is the activity that you would see at the bottoms of markets. You know, speaking about tops of markets, the cryptocurrencies also, to me, seem to be caught into this uh, getting out of the momentum, the speculative assets, looking for safer investments. We've seen a big drop in cryptocurrencies over the last couple of days. You know, Bitcoin, I mentioned the last podcast, had gotten back up to about, what, 8,500 or so. Uh, Now it's back down to about 7,700 as I'm recording, 7,700 and change. Uh, But the altcoins going down even more as Bitcoin has now risen as high I think is 48.5% of the total market hitting a new high for the year as far as its dominance. So it seems like internally, right, the same type of trade that's going on in the stock market where investors are going from more speculative growth names to the value names, I think the crypto speculators are kind of doing the same thing, at least in their mind, by moving out of altcoins into Bitcoin, right? Because Bitcoin is considered the blue chip 
uh, the value uh, cryptocurrency and the other altcoins are more speculative. So it's kind of the same dynamic going on. But what's probably more important is that the entire sector, I was looking earlier today at the uh, top 100 cryptocurrencies and all 99 of them, all but one was down. There was one that was up 2%. I don't know, maybe it's down by now. I haven't checked. But when I looked at it earlier, it was the only one of the top 100 that was, was up. But these cryptocurrencies, including Bitcoin, are going down with all the spec names, with all the tech stocks. And, and so to me, again, that ratifies my idea that these are speculative assets. They are not safe havens, right? People are trying to market them as a place to go when you, know, you want to hide out, when you want to play it safe, kind of like gold as a safe haven. But they don't trade like a safe haven. They trade like a speculative asset. And now they're falling in price just like all of the other speculative assets. You know, I would uh, believe that ultimately the next rotation is going to come out of Bitcoin because when people realize, wait a minute, we're buying Bitcoin because we think it's the value cryptocurrency. The other ones, the altcoins are more speculative. So people are trading down uh, the risk curve to something they believe to be more conservative. But when they realize, wait a minute, there's no value here either. The real rotation will be out of Bitcoin into gold. You know, and I tweeted about that earlier today. And of course, all the Bitcoin guys are jumping all over me, you know, laughing. Oh, this is crazy. It's going to be the other way around, right? It's going to be people moving out of gold into Bitcoin. You know, there was a, a survey. I think Wells Fargo did this survey. They announced it, I think, earlier in the week about investors' interest in, in Bitcoin. And it turns out that I think about 2% of the investors that they polled had bought it. But something like 98% or some really high number had heard of Bitcoin. So, I mean, the name recognition was there. Just about everybody had heard of it. But hardly anybody was thinking about buying it. You know, most of the investors thought it was too risky to buy. Uh, there was a small percentage that said they were intrigued but not likely to buy it. I mean, there was a very, very small number of people who didn't already own it who were actually thinking of buying it. And, of course, the number was bigger among younger people that they polled rather than older people. And of course, the Bitcoin community, they look at this, you know, there's always glass half empty or half full. And of course, they look at these numbers and they think, well, this just shows you, uh, you know, how much room we have to grow because, you know, we're only at 2% and, you know, we have so many more people that can invest. So how can you call it a bubble when it's only 2% of these people who own it? Well, you know, bubbles don't have to include everybody, right? Not everybody owned Beanie Babies, but that didn't stop Beanie Babies from being a bubble. You certainly have enough people worldwide who are investing that you've got plenty of people to make it a bubble, right? I mean, 2% of, a, you know, of the population, if that's what it is, is still a pretty big number or 2% of investors. But also, I like the way the Bitcoin crowd thinks it's a good sign that it's the younger uh, people who are more likely to buy than the older people. And they think it's because, you know, they understand the technology better. You know, the old people are set in their ways. And so, you know, they're not going to recognize this new technology. What they should be thinking about is the older people are just more seasoned investors. They just have a little bit more wisdom. They've seen fads come and go. They've seen manias. They've seen bubbles. And so they're more cautious and they're less likely to make a reckless investment than somebody who's younger and who has a lot less experience. I mean, that's the way I read the thing. And to me, I would not believe that when you look at these numbers and you have so many people who have actually heard about Bitcoin, yet they don't want to buy it. 
and their perception is that it's very risky, where are the new buyers going to come from? If there's so many people that have already decided they're not going to buy, yet you're dependent on more and more people uh, coming into the market to drive it higher, uh, this is not a, a good sign if I was a Bitcoin holder, uh, which I am not. Let me change gears and talk a little bit about politics. I was listening to a clip of an interview with Democratic Socialist Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Right, She's a 28-year-old woman who defeated this 10-term incumbent congressman in New York. She's going to be the youngest, I think, female congressman ever elected. I don't think she's the youngest of any gender because I think there's a there is a guy that you know was elected at a younger age. And I was watching her our interview, and it's incredible just how little this woman knows. I mean, I'm not saying she's you know maybe she's a, a bright woman, but she doesn't know anything about economics, and she doesn't know very much about the issues that that she's running on. You know, one of the the questions that she was asked was about this you know, Medicare for all, and how are we going to pay for it? And she came up with a number that I think is ridiculously low for how much it's actually going to cost. It was a couple of trillion dollars. I don't know where she's getting this number from. But she was asked, how is she going to pay for it? And she says, well, we're going to make the rich pay their fair share. She said, if only the rich people paid their fair share, we'd have plenty of money. And she used Warren Buffett as an example and she said, you know, if only Warren Buffett paid as much taxes as his secretary, then we'd have all this extra money. So if we could tax the rich at like 15%, then we'll have all this money. And I'm like laughing because does she think the rich pay less than 15%? I mean, is she kidding me? I mean, having the rich pay 15% would be a massive tax cut for the rich. Now, I mean, does she think that we should cut taxes on the rich because they'll work harder and if they work harder, they'll generate more income and that'll lead to more taxes? I don't think that's it. I don't think she's a supply sider. I don't think she's, you know, trickle down, right? I think she actually believes that a 15% tax would represent a tax increase for rich people. I mean, I remember, you know, when I was in Zuccotti Park and a lot of people now, about 250,000 people have watched the YouTube video now of me at Occupy Wall Street. But, you know, what's amazing is how little the average person thinks rich people pay in taxes. I mean, they don't realize that rich people are paying 40, 50% of their income in tax. I mean, there's this perception out there that they're not paying anything. When you got guys like Warren Buffett saying, I'm paying less taxes than my secretary, that's a bunch of nonsense. I mean, what Warren Buffett, of course, was talking about was the fact that his secretary, who probably makes, you know, 70, 80, 100,000 a year, maybe 150, I'm sure Warren Buffett has a pretty highly paid secretary. And as a result, her marginal tax rate is going to be pretty high, especially when you throw in the payroll tax. Whereas Warren Buffett doesn't take a salary. He works for free, right? And why does he do that? Because it's tax efficient as the biggest investor in Berkshire Hathaway, he just sells some Berkshire Hathaway stock when he needs money. And of course, when he does that, he just pays the capital gains tax, which is lower than the secretary's tax rate. But of course, what Warren Buffett leaves out is before Berkshire Hathaway could, could generate income, it pays a corporate income tax. And Warren Buffett, as the biggest investor in Berkshire Hathaway, pays his share of that corporate income tax. So when you add the tax that Warren Buffett pays as, as a shareholder of Berkshire Hathaway to the tax that he pays 
either on his dividends on Berkshire Hathaway or when he sells for a capital gain, if you add those two tax rates together, which you should, to be honest, then he probably pays a higher rate of income tax than his secretary. But you know, that one thing, that's all she hears about. Oh, Warren Buffett's paying less than his secretary. She assumes that the secretary maybe is paying 15%. So things, oh, it would be great if we can get the rich people to pay 15% when they're already paying so much more than 15%. But you know, you can go and listen to this interview. And this is going to be a congresswoman from New York. She's going to be in the House of Representatives. And, and people think she actually knows what she's doing. She, has, she doesn't have a clue. You know, I talked on an earlier podcast about what I said on the Joe Rogan show about why I think the voting age is too low, right? The voting age uh, at 18... And it used to be 21, and it was lowered to 18 during the Vietnam War days because, uh, you know, people were being drafted and they was like, well, if you're old enough to to fight, you're old enough to vote, which is not true. I mean, the fighting and voting have nothing to do with one another. I mean, if that's the case, the people who are too old. Uh, to fight, well, they're too old to vote, right? So only people who are in, who can be drafted uh, should be allowed to vote. I, I don't think that the two uh, equate. But what I'd really like to see too is not just an increase in the age at which you can vote, but what about an increase in the age in which you can run for a federal office? Because we get our age requirements from the Constitution, right? And so the Constitution, uh, 1789. Obviously, a couple of things have changed, or more than a couple of things have changed since then, but some important things are life expectancy is much greater today. People live to a much older age than they did uh, over 200 years ago. And also, people matured a lot sooner because they didn't spend as much time in school, right? So if you look at what the ages are, in order to be in the House of Representatives, you need to be 25 years old. In order to be a senator, you need to be 30. And in order to be president, you need to be 35. Now, why are these age requirements there? Well, you know, why don't they just like anybody run? Well, the reason is the founding fathers wanted a certain amount of maturity and experience before people went into politics. And also their conception of the way, you know, Congress would work was that it would be a citizen legislature, that people would not make a career out of politics, that they would go to Congress, go to the Senate, spend a couple of terms, and then go back to the private sector. And of course, working in the private sector, running a business, understanding uh, you know, uh, property and capitalism and all that was important in knowledge and experience to have before you became a legislature, right? But now, fast forward, here we are, 2018, You can run for Congress when you're 25. There are a lot of people that by the time they're 25, they've never actually had a job. You could run for Congress while you're living in your parents' basement. I mean, a lot of people are barely out of school. You know, you get out, you get your degree at 21, 22, 23, depending on how many years it takes you to finish your undergrad. And then some people spend two or three years in grad school. And now you're 25, 26 years old and you can go to Congress. I mean, that's ridiculous. And then 30 I mean, 30, I mean, a lot of people, again, have barely worked by the time they're 30. Think about a guy in 1800 when he was 25 years old. Chances are he had been married for five, six, seven years, maybe, you know, had two or three kids already, had his own home, had a job, was working, maybe had a business. I mean, certainly by the time you were 30, 
I mean, here, Christ, you were middle-aged. I mean, how many people even lived over 60 years old uh, 200, 250 years ago? So by the time you were 30, I mean, you were pretty mature as far as your real-world experience. And then 35 to be president, I mean, come on, right? You'd probably been in the workforce for 20 or more years by the time you're 35 because you started working before you were 15, right? You might even have grandkids, you know, coming by then. Uh, so you had real experience. Today, a 30-year-old barely has any experience at all in the real world, if he has any. 35 to be president, these are much too young ages. Now, I know most presidents are well beyond 35, but we have a lot of congressmen that are in their 20s. Uh, I think we should amend the Constitution specifically to increase the age at which you can run for Congress. Because I don't want people like this socialist Democrat, 26, 27 years old, before she has any real experience, just running for office and just getting elected. I mean, th th this is going to be very damaging. So I would say that we should increase at least 10 years, uh, if not 15. So at a minimum, you should have to be 35 to be in, in the House of Representatives, 40 to be in the Senate, right? And, and 45 to be president, right? I mean, those ages make more sense to me because you have a lot more real world experience. Plus, if you have to wait until you're 40 to be in the Senate, I mean, it's hard to make a career out of being in the Senate if you have to wait that long before you can run. I mean, we got these guys that have been senators four or five terms, six terms. I mean, if you can't run for Senate until you're a certain amount of age, it almost forces you to have another career before you enter politics, which would be a good thing. You know, we need to have uh, people in government who understand the private sector because they've actually worked in the private sector, right? They've collected a paycheck, or more importantly, they've actually written a paycheck. They've signed the front of a paycheck and not just the back of a paycheck. And so if we can up the, 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 uh, the age at which people can run for federal office, uh, we would have a much higher caliber of representatives and they wouldn't be there as long, right? They, they, they wouldn't be, you know, lifelong career uh, politicians. They would only be there for a shortened number of time because we didn't let them run until they were older. And of course, hopefully by then, you know, they grow out of a lot of this, you know, these ridiculous socialist beliefs. Now, of course, some of them don't grow out of it. I mean, look at Bernie Sanders. I mean, how old is he? 70 something. And he still thinks like a 20 year old. Uh, so for some people, they're never going to wise up no matter how long they live. But the majority of people who are, you know, who are that naive or that idealistic, uh, give them enough time, let them grow up a little bit, let them have some real world experience. And they're going to jettison a lot of those ridiculous beliefs that they held when they were younger in favor of uh, beliefs that they now understand better because of the wisdom of age. And it's not just the politicians that do dumb things. It's the judges, too. And I've talked about that many times on this podcast. And most recently, I just read about a California Supreme Court ruling, right, if, as if it wasn't bad enough to have employees in the state of California. The Supreme Court just made it worse. And apparently, I think a Starbucks restaurant or, or an employee sued the restaurant for extra pay because it was an hourly employee. And when his shift ended, he needed to lock up after he left, like close the door and lock it, you know, because he was on the way out. And obviously, somebody else who has the morning shift has to come in. They got to they gotta unlock the door before they can start their shift. 
And this guy said that it took him somewhere between four and 10 minutes every day to, um, to lock up. And he wasn't getting paid for that because he clocked out and then he left. And so he had four to 10 minutes every day of work that he was doing for which he wasn't paid. And he actually sued his employer uh, for the extra money. Now, according to the, the opinion, the extra money amounted to like $100. I mean, who sues somebody for $100? Right, lawyers, that's who, because they don't give a damn. Because one of the aspects about California labor law, which is so terrible and which allows uh, so much extortion, is that when you sue your boss and you win, you get your attorney's fees back, no matter how little you win. So the big money that the uh, the employer is going to have to pay is not the 100 bucks. He's going to have to pay the thousands or tens of thousands in legal bills. And of course, this went up to the Supreme Court. Who It could be hundreds of thousands in legal bills. Who the hell knows? And of course, the employer has to pay the legal bills on both sides. He's got to pay his own legal bills and he's got to pay uh, the, the, the workers' legal bills. Now, I don't know, maybe it was a court. I'm not sure of all the details. Maybe it's a corporate Starbucks. And so they got the big bucks and they could stand on principle and they recognized that this could have implications for all their stores. And so they had to uh, fight it. But, you know, sometimes you do have mom and pop uh, business owners who are very principled people and, you know, stand on principle to their own demise because they fight things. Obviously, the cheapest thing that you can do is just write the guy a check for 100 bucks, right? And then come up with some other reason to fire him. Because why would you want to have an employee who wanted to nitpick about the four minutes that it took him to lock up the door as he was leaving? I mean, come on. I mean, yes, he's hourly paid. But, you know, you know you work a certain shift. And you know going in that I have to lock up. And if it takes four or five minutes to lock up, okay. I mean, you know, all that is part of the deal, right? I mean, you know what you're being paid and you know you're not getting paid extra for locking up. And so if that's a problem, then say something to your boss right up front. Hey, you want me to lock up? You got to pay me extra. You know, see how far that gets you. I mean, most people, you know, you have a job, you're hoping to get promoted. You want to have some goodwill. You're not going to nitpick your boss over every little minute of time. Look, I'm not saying that people should work for nothing. They're not. They're getting paid. Whether their paycheck is specifically targeted to the few minutes that it takes them to lock up the door or unlock the door on the way in. Look, how much time do workers spend when they're on the clock getting paid not working? They take bathroom breaks. They take smoke breaks. They take coffee breaks. You know, they, are, are, are they clocking in and out? You know, I mean, I don't know, you know, Starbucks, I mean, you know, how many free coffees do these guys drink? I mean, every time they have a latte, are they are they are they putting money in the cash register? I mean, that's generally one of the perks. You know, you work at uh, Baskin and Robbins. You know, kids working there has plenty of free ice cream. The boss isn't you know making him pay for all the ice cream he eats. I mean, people work at restaurants. I mean, they eat all kinds of free food, right? I mean, what about and when it's slow? Let's say you're at a uh, you're working at a ice cream parlor, and you know between customers. I mean, look, there's nobody there. What do you do? You're on the internet. You're sending emails. Uh, you know, you're checking, maybe you're, you're trading cryptocurrencies. Some people look at porn at work. I mean, the, none of this stuff, they're not going off the clock. I mean, there's, there's so much time that employers pay and they're not getting any work. But I mean, look, this is how life is. But, but you know, now you get this guy coming and saying, I'm going to sue you because you didn't pay me for 
the extra few minutes. Now, how are you even going to know? How long does it take to lock up? I mean, if the guy knows he's getting paid on the clock to lock up, what if it, what if he deliberately takes a long time to lock up? Oh, it took me 15, 20 minutes to lock up. I mean, you know, I mean, are they supposed to have cameras installed to make sure that they that they're not dawdling uh, as they're locking up so that they can get some some extra pay? But you know, think about this because you could go and take this to the extreme because the court is trying to say that he's required to make that payment because it was necessary. It was time that he had to spend in order to complete the task. Well, if that's the case, why don't the employers have to pay the workers for the time it takes them to get to their job, the commute time? I mean, obviously, if somebody is driving to work at a Starbucks, I mean, why aren't they paid for the time in the car to get there or the time on the bus, right? Why don't they get paid for that? Obviously, they're not doing it for fun. I mean, it's required. It's just like locking up on the way out. I mean, I got to get to my to my office or get to the store before I can work. So why don't the employers have to pay for that? It's clearly related to the work. Hey, why doesn't the uh, the employee get to bill Starbucks for the time it takes to put on the uniform in the morning, right? Because you got to wear, you know, the uniform. So, you know, what if it takes the guy five minutes to get dressed and put on his uniform? Why doesn't the employer have to pay for that? I mean, in fact, why, do, why, you know, why don't all employers have to pay their employees for the time that it takes them to get dressed? After all, they can't come to work naked, right? They got to get dressed. So, I mean, that should be on the employer to have to pay that, right? Because, you know, you, you, know, you got to be dressed. In fact, then what about the clothes? I mean, why don't the employers have to reimburse their employees for the cost of the clothes and the cost of washing the clothes? I mean, they can't come to work with dirty clothes. So clearly, you know, they, the boss should have to pay the cost of cleaning those clothes. In fact, what, what about the time that got the worker spends in the shower every morning? I mean, you can't come to the work without taking a shower. I mean, you can't come to work smelling, especially if you're, you know, working in customer service. So why can't, you know, why don't uh, the employers have to pay for the time in the shower? I mean, you could, you could keep going on and on and on. Oh, what about, you know, the guy needs a place to sleep. What about charging your, your employer for your rent? I mean, how are you going to come to work unless you have a good night's sleep? the day before. Now you can have a good night's sleep unless you have a place to stay, right? There's there's no limit to all the things that you can go back and say, hey, let's let's make sure that you get paid. No, all this stuff is part of your job, right? So all the time it takes you to get dressed in the morning, to shave, to drive to work, all that is built into what you're getting paid by the hour, right? Because you know that everybody who accepts a job knows that it's going to take a certain amount of time for me to get to the office or get to my place of business. And they look at the entire compensation that they're getting and they measure it over all the time it takes them because a lot of people turn down jobs, even if the hourly rate is relatively good, if they realize, well, it's a three hour commute and this and that, you know, I'm not going to take the job, right? So employees are already making these decisions about all of the extra time that they need to devote in order to be at their job for the required number of hours in which they're getting compensated. And then they make a decision, do I want that job or not? You can't go back after the fact. You've been working a year, two years, five years, 10 years, whatever it is, and then go back and say, oh, I didn't get paid extra for the time I spent doing this. Now I want to sue my boss for more money. That's not fair. That's just using the power of government. That's extorting money uh, from your in, in, employer, and you know, I, I, you know, I put something on Facebook about this, and I get comments that, oh, you know, we need all these rules because the the the, the employers have all the power. 
The workers don't have any power. Believe me, people that say that have never employed anybody. I mean, employees have a lot of power, especially good employees. You know, if you're a small business, the last thing you want is your good employees to walk out the door. And a lot of times they threaten to do so. And then, you know, you got to give them a raise or you got to do all sorts of things in order to keep good employees. Because you know what? Other employers want good employees too. There's a lot of competition for good employees. It's the bad employees. And of course, sometimes it's hard to get rid of those bad employees because they've got a lot of power now where they can sue you or they can do all sorts of things to screw up your life. I mean, look, a lot of people with these cockamamie lawsuits, they would settle. I mean, how are you going to fight a claim over $100? How are you going to afford to pay lawyers? How are you going to risk in, you know, getting hit with your employees' lawyers? And so you're going to, you're going to pay up. Look, I got a phone call today from a client of mine who needed to close out one of his accounts. He needed some money. And I asked him, you know, what's the money for? And he said that he runs car washes in New York City. And because of the increasing minimum wage and more importantly, the move towards taking away the exemption for tipped employees, because right now he doesn't have to pay the full minimum wage because the people that work at the car wash get a lot of tips. And so because they get a lot of tips, uh, he can pay less. But he says that he thinks that's going to go away. And so he wants to get out in front of that. And so he's investing in automation. He wants to try to eliminate as many human beings as he can from his car wash. And so he's going to invest in some capital equipment. And of course, he could have done that for years. He said he's very labor intensive, uh, more so than a lot of his competitors. He says, you know, a lot of his uh, customers appreciate that. They like to hand wash and dry and the cars come out nicer. But at this point, he has no choice. And now he's making the investment because the government has so increased the cost of labor that now it makes sense for him to make this investment in these labor-saving devices so he can eliminate the labor and eliminate the need to have to pay these higher wages. And so now, instead of his workers getting a raise because of the increase in minimum wage, they're going to get a pink slip. They're going to get fired. Their wages are going to be reduced to zero because of the minimum wage. And of course, all this stuff, like overtime or people suing you because they spent four or five minutes locking up and they don't think that they were paid and they think they're entitled to it. So you, you don't have to deal with any of that nonsense when you automate, when you have a machine. So it's not only trying to get out from under the minimum wage, but it's trying to get away from all of the, the la legal liability that is now imposed. I mean, I've said this many times, the riskiest thing you can do in America is employ somebody. The minute you become an employee, you lose all your rights, right? Workers have rights, right? Workers' rights, right? There's no employer rights. There are always workers' rights, which is all a bunch of nonsense. Workers don't have rights. Individuals have rights. And individuals don't lose their rights when they employ somebody. But in America, that's what happens. You become an employer and they paint a big target on your back. Why is that? Because more people are employees than employers, right? So if you are a politician, you don't care about the employer. They're not that many votes. You know, they asked Willie Sutton, you know, why do you rob banks? Well, that's where the money is. Well, why do politicians look for laws that favor workers? Because that's where the votes are. Most people do not become employers. The vast majority of people never employ anybody directly. I mean, indirectly, yeah, they, they, they go into a barber shop and they get a haircut. So in a way, they're you know, they're, they're employing somebody to cut their hair, but they're not running the business. Uh, they're just choosing one salon over another uh, in, uh, in who's cutting their hair. 
but they're not directly employing that person. They're not taking them on a payroll or something like that. Or even when you just have somebody come to your house or you employ an independent contractor to come, a plumber to come and fix a leak, a leak in your pipes, right? You're, you're, not te- you're, you're employing that person in a way for a one-off job, but you're not becoming their employer where you're obligated to pay them on a regular basis, whether or not you have a profit or, or loss. Remember, when you are a business owner, you only get paid if there's money left over after you pay all your employees and after you pay everybody else, you know, your landlord, I mean, all the other costs that you have. The owner of a business only gets paid if there's a profit. The workers get paid as long as they work. Many times the business owner works harder than any of his employees, works longer hours, and he might not get paid at all. In fact, when I started my business for the first year or two, I didn't get paid anything. There wasn't enough profit for me to make take a salary. I worked for nothing. I worked on my savings. But I had employees that I had to pay. They did work and they expected to get paid for it. But when you do work as the owner of the business, you may never get paid. I mean, my business could have failed. All that work could have been for nothing. That was the risk that I took. Entrepreneurs take a risk and there needs to be a reward uh, commensurate with that risk. When you're working for wages, you're not taking that risk. You're going to get paid whether your efforts are productive or not, whether your company makes money or not. You know, you have all these workers. They always want to demand to share of the profit, yet they never want to share the losses. See, if I had employees that said, hey, I want to share the profits. Okay, well, you're going to share in the losses? Am I, you're going to give me back some of your salary if I don't make money? I mean, most employees don't want a share of the losses. That's why they're employees. They want a steady paycheck that they can count on. When you own the business, you don't have anything that you can count on. And therefore, you have to be a lot more responsible. Generally, you have to build up a lot more savings. You have to prepare for the the lean years even uh, if the business maybe has a cyclical component to it uh, so that you can weather the storm and continue to to make other payments, including wage payments on time to people who are counting on it. Now, another comment too that I think I want to make that relates to this, and it has to do with uh, President Trump came out, I think, yesterday talking about passing just by executive order so that capital gains would be indexed for inflation, right? And he's thinking, maybe I can do it without Congress enacting it. I can just say that, you know, capital gains taxes will be indexed uh, for inflation. Now, of course, I am in favor of that. In fact, I don't even think it will go far enough because obviously it's going to be indexed to the CPI. And so I don't think the CPI even captures all the inflation. I think it underreports it. So I still think that there will be an inflationary component, which means that people are paying gains, taxes on gains that don't really exist. They're phantom gains, right? If the only gain you have is to keep you even with the cost of living, you don't really have a gain at all. But the government derives that tax. That's one of the reasons that the government creates inflation because they profit from it because it creates phony gains that are then subject to tax. So if it were up to me, uh, I wouldn't index it to the CPI. I would try to have a, an index that better captured the, the true extent of, uh, of inflation. But of course, the best thing to do is just not have a capital gains tax at all. Just make it zero. And then you don't have to worry about whether the gain is due to inflation or not. You don't have to try to measure it because we're not going to tax it. Um, but, you know, whenever I think about having no tax on capital gains, I also think that that's not fair because why are we taxing wages? I mean, why are we going to have an income tax on wages, but not an income tax on capital? See, I, I, I can never get past that. That's why I want to eliminate the income tax entirely. I don't think you should pay taxes on your labor or your capital. And the main reason, too, why, why 
labor should not be taxed, like wages or salaries, is because there's no real gain there. Because what is the cost, right? When you, whenever I, I buy something and sell it at a profit, I can deduct my cost, right? The cost uh, of whatever I bought to determine whether I sold it at a profit. And in fact, even when you have a business, when you operate a business, what's taxed is the profits, right? There's not an income tax. Corporations don't pay an income tax. They pay a profits tax. They don't pay taxes on their income. They pay taxes on the profits that are derived from that income. And so how do they generate profits or calculate profits? They take all their income, right? Their, their, what, what they earn, and then they subtract all their costs, all their expenses. So the income minus the expenses leaves the profit. And it's only if there's a profit that they end up paying a tax. But individuals pay a tax on just what comes in. They don't get to deduct what goes out because the government says it's all personal. Like in the example where I talked about a worker having to drive uh, to work. Obviously, he couldn't do his work unless he got there. So you have to drive there, take a cab, take an Uber, take a train, right? That costs money. The IRS does not let you deduct the cost of going back and forth to work from uh, your pay in calculating your income. But of course, if you didn't get to work, you wouldn't have a job. Clearly, it's a business expense, but the IRS just says, no, you can't deduct it. And just like I said, you know, you try to deduct your clothes. I can't I can't go to work naked. I need, I need clothes for work. Uh-uh, personal expense. Well, you know, I, I need a, a, a place to live. I want to deduct my rent. I mean, I, I need I need a place to sleep. I need a place to, you know, to shower in the morning. I got to, I got to, you know, because I can't show up to work, you know, unshowered. I got to shave. Or if you're a woman, I got to do my makeup. I got to do my hair. Can I deduct the cost of all that? Can't, no. I mean, all these expenses, which are clearly necessary before you can show up employment ready, um, should be uh, something that you could subtract when calculating your income tax because you really don't have any income. And then, of course, what about the value of your labor? Like if, if I work for an employer and they pay me wages, what are they getting from me? They're getting my time. They're getting my effort. They're getting my labor. What is that worth? I mean, that's worth something, right? Obviously, because I'm getting paid, but I mean, I could be lying on the beach. I could be having fun, but instead I am selling my labor to my employer. But what I'm really doing is, is exchanging my labor for money. There's no gain. I'm not gaining anything. I am giving up my labor in exchange for money because when an employer hires somebody and pays wages, the employer doesn't pay taxes on the value of what the worker gives the employer. No, he writes that off. The, the, the wages that are paid to the employee are a deduction against his income tax. Well, why can't the worker deduct the value of the labor that he gives his employer? And if he could do that, it would be a wash, which is why, in reality, wages are not supposed to be taxable income. That was another point my father used to make all the time uh, in, in, in his books and in his lectures, that the income tax was a tax on it. It was a gain. It was a tax on the gain derived from labor, not on wages and salaries. That's why Section 61 of the Internal Revenue Code doesn't specifically say that your you know you, wages and salaries are part of taxable income because wages and salaries do not represent a gain they represent a fair exchange of labor for money and you know there's no gain there if you're just trading uh, one thing for something else uh, and so to me if we simply had no capital gains tax but still we're taxing the worker on his labor the value of his labor 
without any deductions whatsoever. I just don't think that's a fair system. That's one of the reasons uh, that I wouldn't want to just abolish the capital gains. I'd want to abolish the entire income tax and just go to a, you know, a sales tax or we can have tariffs, whatever you want. But obviously, we'd have a much smaller government if the government had to survive on indirect taxes, on excise taxes, which is what the framers originally envisioned. They thought that direct taxes, like an income tax, uh, would only be used during times of war. That's why they made it so hard to enact one. And they figured it would be, you know, an emergency if there was a war. But during peacetime, uh, the government was supposed to operate uh, on, on excise taxes. And of course, the whole idea of an income tax to me is inconsistent with free people. I mean, free people do not have to report everything to the government. They don't have to fill out paperwork under penalty of perjury and file all these tax returns and keep all these records. I mean, to me, I mean, we're not the master and the government is the servant. If the government is forcing us to do all this, the government is the master and the people are the servants. And that is not what America is supposed to be about. Of course, the biggest problem I have with the capital gains tax cut is that government spending is not also being cut. So we're talking about another tax cut without reducing the size of government. And since government spending needs to be paid for, if we're going to cut the capital gains tax, how are we going to pay for the government spending that the capital gains tax used to pay for? Obviously, we are going to borrow it. And borrowed money is going to do more damage to the economy than whatever benefit we get from reducing the capital gains tax. Look, here is more of an example of the Republicans offering up their own version of a free lunch. They want to promise more tax cuts to their base to try to get the Republicans to come out to the polls in the midterm elections, and they're giving them something for nothing, which are tax cuts. Now, I get it. They're getting to keep their own money, so it's not the same something for nothing that the left uh, serves up where they promise to give people other people's money. The Republicans are promising to let you keep your own money. But the problem is they're not asking anybody to sacrifice. They are saying that we can have these tax cuts, but no government spending has to be reduced to make it possible. And that is what the lie is. You know, I talked about this a little bit today on Fox Business. I was on with Charles Payne. You know, the only person that's had me out, well, I was on with Liz Clayman not too long ago. I forget when, but I was on the last time before that I was on with Charles Payne and he invited me on again. Uh, so I think my last three uh, television interviews have all been on Fox Business. So they've been having me on every once in a while. But I was on with Charles Payne talking about this issue. And before I came on, you know, they were all talking about how great the this this would be for the economy, how great it would be for investors not to get taxed on inflation. I agree that would be great. But what government spending are we going to pay? Because when you're saying that these tax cuts would be great, you're also saying that bigger deficits would be great. And when I got to my segment, you know, Charles was talking about how the economy was booming and it was firing on all cylinders. And I tried to say it wasn't. The one thing that, you know, we agreed on and Charles and I agreed on was that, yes, government spending is too big. And, you know, everybody knows that in the Trump administration and they're, you know, going to get around to doing something about it. No, they're not. They're not going to get around to doing something about it. The time to do something about it is right now. I mean, now that they've got their tax cuts, there's no reason to do something about it. They may have had to do something about it if some Republicans forced some responsibility, if they withheld their support of the tax cuts, uh, unless we got spending cuts. But now that the taxes have already been cut, and now that they're offering up more tax cuts, 
Why should they ever cut government spending? Because government spending is going to anger the people who lose out on the benefits. And of course, it allows the Republicans to be portrayed by their Democratic opponents as being mean-spirited, as taking money away from the poor, taking money away from the middle class, giving it to the rich. So there's no way that they're ever going to cut government spending. And of course, you know, I, I was up against some mindless woman. I don't remember who she was, but she was a total cheerleader uh, for the Trump economy. Everything is great. It's booming. I don't know what I'm talking about. I mean, I mean, very much reminiscent of the 2006, 2007 days uh, when I they would put me on and I would go up against these people, particularly in the housing market. She sounds to me like one of the realtors. You can go back and look at some of the YouTube videos when I was on Fox or CNBC or CNN when I was up against a realtor during the housing bubble. They were just going on and on about how great the housing market is and how prices would never stop going up and all this was fantastic. That's exactly what this woman sounded like to me uh, talking about uh, the economy under Donald Trump. And she's going to be just as wrong about what she's saying about this Trump economy as what the realtors were saying about the housing market right before the bubble popped. Anyway, we got a lot of uh, economic data yet to come this week, you know, we get the uh, jobs number, big jobs number coming out on Friday. So I'll have probably be talking about that on a podcast on Friday. I know everybody is waiting, uh, especially Donald Trump. He's probably already getting ready to send out a tweet uh, about uh, job creations. We're going to get that number. We also get the ADP number tomorrow, which is the first look. It's the, the private payrolls. We get that the Wednesday before the first Friday of every month. In fact, this was the last day of the month of July. So the first Friday in August is this Friday. That's why we get the number. The Federal Open Market Committee started their two-day meeting today. We're going to get uh, the end of it tomorrow. Nobody expects the Fed to raise rates. They have a tendency to only raise rates on the meetings where they have a press conference. Uh, There's no press conference that's going to happen tomorrow. Uh, They're simply going to announce that there's no change in policy. But of course, whenever they make an announcement, uh, it is written and everybody parses through the language to try to figure out if the Fed has somehow changed their bias. Are they more likely to raise more than the markets think or maybe not as much as the markets think? So those could be market moving events. And I will talk about that as well on the next podcast. Meantime, too, I want to thank everybody again who is taking the time to review uh, my podcast on iTunes or any of the other formats where you happen to be listening to it. And by the way, you know, even if you're listening on one format, you can go to Stitcher or some other uh, podcast site and, you know, review me over there, too, just to to help get uh, more reviews. But especially to the people who have written such, uh, such nice reviews Uh, where you actually don't just put the stars, but you write uh, something. And I believe I've read a lot of them. So if you don't think I'm looking at them, and it really means a lot to me when I read these reviews and I, you know, read uh, how much of a difference my podcast is making in people's lives and that people are really getting a lot out of it because it, you know, it, it, it motivates me more to want to record new podcasts and take time out of my day to do it. Uh, So if you listen to this podcast on a regular basis and you appreciate it, let me know. I am reading these comments, so you can write up a comment as well as put in a five-star review. And hopefully what this will do, and this again is what I've been told, 
is part of my ranking formula or the ranking formula that is used to determine, you know, which podcasts are higher up in, you know, the, the order of popular podcasts is how often they're reviewed and, the, you know, how good the reviews are. So help me to spread the word uh, by, by including your review wherever you're listening to my podcast. <music>